I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. And speaking of keeping you up to date with what's going on in the literary world, today we are joined by Pamela Paul, the editor of the New York Times Book Review. And uh, as you probably all know, the New York Times picks, among other lists, the top 10 books of the year. And she's joining us to talk about how the editors of the New York Times Book Review chose the top best fiction and nonfiction titles of 2018. One of the things that was kind of fun that I realized when we were talking is three of the books that were on their nonfiction list, Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs, Educated by Tara Westover, and Frederick Douglass by David Blight, were guests on Just the Right Book. So that's kind of fun that three out of five uh, we got to talk to, and you can get to listen to the conversation. Pamela, I am so excited that you took the time to be with us. The New York Times comes up with the 10 best books of the year. This year, I think it was November 28th or 29th. And, you know, we as booksellers can't wait to see the list But even more excitingly, our readers can't wait and consider this sort of the ultimate guideline for books that they need to get to. Excellent. So the the big question, of course, is how do you even go about picking the books? In truth, there are four lists of 10 best. Um, the New York Times Book Review does its 10 best, um, and that is selected by the editors of the book review. And then each of our three critics for the New York Times, Dwight Garner, Pearl Sagal, and Jennifer Salai, create their own list of 10 of their favorites from 2018 or from whatever year it is, based on the books that they've reviewed. So it's very different in terms of the approach, because the New York Times Book Review is a collaborative process, and I'll go into that um, in more detail. And each of the critics, it's very straightforward because they know the 52 or so books that they've reviewed that year, and they're merely picking from within that the ones that are their favorites. They don't have to consult anyone. They don't have to leave anything off that they don't want to leave off or put anything on there that they don't want to include. It's all about their own individual taste. At the New York Times Book Review, it's a little bit different. We actually convene the entire desk. We start really at the beginning of each year, each calendar year, in about January. We've actually started our 2019 year list already. And the reason we're able to do that is because our editors are reading months ahead of time. So they already know what's coming out in January and February that they love. And we're always, you know, really conscious about not overlooking books in the beginning of the year. Mm. Um, So there are often January releases. I think this year, Asymmetry made our 10 best list, and that came out in January or February. So, um, And that's because we're paying attention from the very beginning of the publishing year. So we will start a Google Doc um, now, uh, a little bit higher tech now than it was in the past, where everyone on the entire books desk at the Times... How many people is that, Pamela? Um, well, it depends on how you count it. But, it, it, you know, we're about a couple dozen people altogether. Mm-hmm. So everyone can pitch in on that from our, you know, news assistants to our art director to our photo editor to writers on the desk to, you know, the editors on the book review and editors of news stories to, 
write down any books on that sort of running list that they think might be a contender. And we break it down from the beginning to into fiction and nonfiction because we choose five of each. And as the year goes on, that uh, list grows and shifts. It shrinks a little bit, too, as people realize, well, that book actually maybe wasn't so good. Um, and we are keeping shelves of these books so that we can, among ourselves, you know, read books that are on there mm. and be able to weigh in towards the end of the year. And eventually, the process comes down to, after some early rounds of voting, the editors of the book review making the decision. And that goes through also several rounds of voting where we have kind of paper ballots and people um, name the books that they most want to be on there and cross off anything that they don't want to be. And after that, it's a kind of numbers game. But we also get together and have meetings in which we discuss and debate and try to persuade our colleagues um, one way or the other about the merit of a particular book. Pamela, one of the things I thought about when I looked at the list and before we get to the list, to what extent do you think either your process or in general how we think of the best books, how reflective are your choices about them covering a topic that seems important to cover now? Mm -hmm. And to what extent by uh, the judgment that this is a book for all times? Oh, well, it's interesting. I mean, you actually answered the question right there because it really should be a book that does both, that is both of the moment and transcends the moment. It's a book that we hope that both speaks to people right now, to readers of our time, but that in five or 10 or 20 years, people will still be looking back and saying that was a great book. Um, and, you know, reading it perhaps in courses or um, in reissued anniversary editions. So we're looking for books that, you know, it, it's not necessarily about a book that, oh, this has a, a message that we sign on to, and therefore we think it's the best book. It's not just about the argument of a book. It's not just about mm -hmm. um, an issue that a reporter might illuminate or a novelist might, you know, describe in a deep way. It's about the craft. It's about the storytelling, the quality of the prose, the narrative as a whole, the amount of work and research that went into it, and really the, the you know, the overall package of the book. Um, so that, you know, ends up wiping out a lot of contenders that we think you know, wow, this is a really great novel, but you know what? It's ultimately, um, it's a first novel. It's not quite polished enough. The person isn't there yet. I could see this person, you know, writing a, a 10 best book a few years from now, but this isn't, this isn't it. Or a book that um, has a political message or a social cultural message that we think, wow, this is really important. This should be getting out to readers, but you know, wow, it's really um, not exciting to read. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, you know, it's it, it sort of dutifully written. And, and yes, it's very important. And yes, people should be aware of whatever the investigation um, that person wrote about or um, a uh, an area of history that they, you know, brought to life that hadn't yet been known or written about or original research they did. But if the writing isn't good, if the storytelling isn't there, if the prose sort of doesn't rise to the level of what we would consider our best book, it just doesn't make the cut. Mm. You know, it's interesting because I think about R.J. Joy has existed for almost 30 years. And I think about some of the books that were big years ago, and I'm always fascinated about the ones that continue to have legs mm -hmm. and those that don't. You know, at our 25th anniversary, we picked our best book from each of the years, and it was a reminder to me about books that went away. Right. And, and I don't know why they went away. And, you know, maybe they'll come back someday, uh, but they went away. 
Right. But we all know, too, that, you know, people don't just read brand new books. Yeah. They read backlist. And a really great book has the power, you know, to reach readers 20 years from publication. Exactly. I mean, the book that I'm reading right now um, is Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns. Mm. That's the book that I think came out in the early aughts. And yet, you know, when I brought up the fact that I was reading it, uh, three other people I know said, oh, I'm reading that, too. Um, and you know, that may be in part because Isabel Wilkerson, the author, just reviewed Michelle Obama's book for us. But I think that it's just one of those books that is so powerful, so well done, so definitive. That Absolutely. That's a book that is going to endure for decades. So let's get to the books before we run out of time. All right. Um, well, I can I can run through the list okay, if you good. like. And that'll, that'll leave people uh, hopefully not um, holding their breath. Um, so on the fiction side... Um, is Symmetry by Lisa Halliday, which I mentioned earlier. It's a debut novel. It's interestingly constructed. Um, the structure is, is sort of it's told in three parts. You have a first story um, that is about a young aspiring writer and her relationship with an older, very well-established writer, um, brilliant, much older uh, novelist, who we all know is modeled in at least in part on Philip Roth because the author, Lisa Halliday, did have a relationship with uh, the late Roth. And so uh, then then it transitions to a very different story about a um, an Iraqi American economist who is being detained at Heathrow. Um, and then in the third part, the, we see how these stories are connected. Um, the second book is The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Um, I think this is Mackay's third book. And it's always nice to reward uh, a writer who's been kind of working at their craft for a while. Um, and it's the first time that she's made our list. And this is a book that takes place in Chicago and in Paris. And it's about the AIDS epidemic, sort of the height of the AIDS epidemic um, at its worst. And one of the interesting things is that many AIDS epidemic stories sort of take place in San Francisco or in New York, which are two of the kind of epicenters of, of, of the disease. And so it's interesting um, to see that through the lens of Chicago, which I believe is where um, Mackay is from. The third book, um, also kind of interesting in terms of perspective, is The Perfect Nanny by Leila Slimani. Slimani is a French writer of um, North African descent. I think she's Moroccan. And um, this book won the Prix Goncourt in France, which is their sort of, you know, version of the, the Pulitzer Prize. It's their top literary award. And it was the first one awarded to a woman of North African descent it was published here kind of like a domestic thriller, and in a certain mm. way it is, but it's really much more than that. And it's based on the true story that took place in New York a number of years ago, although the, the case was recently, just this past year, um, it went to trial and the killer was convicted. And this was a, a really chilling true story of a nanny who murdered the two young children in her care. And so the, the the book is told from the perspective of that nanny. The fourth book is There, There by Tommy Orange. It was very exciting. Um, I was at the Center for Fiction Awards last night, and he won their award for first fiction with this novel. It is a debut. And it's also, again, interesting um, it's sort of a story that hasn't been told enough, and it hasn't been told in the setting that it's told. So it's about a Native American um, uh, group of, of, of people, and they're living in Oakland. So we've heard this story a little bit on the reservation, and this is uh, the, this group of people in an urban setting. So kind of different perspective on our country. And then finally, again, um, also 
another really interesting juxtaposition of perspectives, Washington Black by Essie Adujan. She is a Canadian writer, and this book won um, Canada's uh, prestigious Giller Prize this year. And it's set in British Barbados in sort of the end days of, of slavery there. And it's, you know, a little bit of a, a tale of a, of, of a enslaved person and his um, white master's brother escaping from where they are and a kind of voyage of discovery and about the shifting relationship between the two of them. So that's what won on the fiction side for us. Now, one question I would have. So these are books that we have tons of readers, including myself, that have been unequivocally enamored of. Mm -hmm. The one that there's, I always find that there's a discussion is asymmetry. There are Mm -hmm. those that consider it brilliant, and there are those that were utterly confused and didn't sort of get it. How would you respond to the skeptic? Well, you know, it's interesting. There were debates here, too. I think a lot of powerful and experimental fiction and kind of daring new work tends to do that. It tends to polarize readers. And I I don't know, you know, sometimes that that kind of, um, those kind of strong divided reactions show that there's something interesting going mm-hmm. on here. There's something provocative. Um, you know, there have been a number of books. A couple of recent ones that I can think of were um, Hanya Gahara's A Little Life, which also had a number of um, ardent fans, and then detractors. Right. Um, and, you know, this, this happens with books that I think are doing something kind of new. So mm-hmm. that's something that, again, we take into consideration when we are naming these books. You know, just sort of what are the risks that the author took? What was right. at stake? That's a good description. Great. Thanks. Okay. Now nonfiction. Okay. So nonfiction. Um, again, five books on the nonfiction side. Some interesting things here. Two of them are memoirs. Um, one of them is an investigation. A third one uh, is a classic work of biography. And the fourth is a kind of meld between personal narrative, science, and history. So I'm going to start with the investigative reporting, um, which was done by Shane Bauer. His book is American Prison. A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment. This book, talk about risks. Um, Shane Bauer was himself imprisoned in Iraq for two years, where I think he was you know, suspected of spying. He gets out, he moves back to the States, um, and he then decides to write about prisons from a very different perspective. He becomes the guard at a privately run prison in rural Louisiana, and he's sort of working undercover there. He's discovered within four months, but even in that time frame, there's so much that he learns about the way that private prisons are operated, about what happens when you yourself as the guard and the other person is the, is the prisoner. He obviously has now experienced this on both sides. He wrote this um, as an article for Mother Jones magazine where he is on staff, and that Article won a National Magazine Award, and then he expanded it into this book. And, you know, a book that starts off as an article and expands uh, into a full-length book, it doesn't always work. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you think, you know what, this was good as an article, it should have stayed an article. In this case, that was not true. Um, He really went much more deep into the history of prisons in the South and really the role of prisons in terms of perpetuating racism in the South. And uh, the growth, the tremendous growth in for-profit prisons, which, you know, is still a, a significant part of the way that uh, the corrections system the, the works in our country. And, in fact, 
when the Trump administration came to power, the one of the first things they did was use these for-profit prisons to detain people who were arrested, basically migrants. It's still very much a contemporary issue. Um, and then there are two memoirs, both of them by women. Both of them are debuts, but they're very different books. Educated is by Tara Westover. Um, this has been a bestseller, really, since it came out. It's just such an incredible story. She is the youngest child of seven. She grew up in Idaho in a survivalist family that, uh, you know, didn't educate their children, um, didn't even give them birth certificates. She went on to get a PhD in history at Cambridge University. And it's not just this kind of um, you know, rags to riches in terms of educational attainment uh, story, but it's a book really about what does it mean to be educated and what does it mean when you become so different from your family of origin and how do you mm. still maintain relationships with the people who sort of held you back um, and, and all of the complications in that. So that's educated. The other really interesting memoir is Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs. Mm. And this is a book that, you know, we thought, oh, it's, you know, a famous father, Steve Jobs, um, obviously the founder, co-founder of, of Apple. Um, and it's going to be a kind of tell-all memoir, and it's really not that at mm-hmm. all. It's a coming-of-age story. And what blew everyone away here was the quality of the writing and the observations and the construction of her narrative. And that is the third one. And then Straight Biography, beautifully done, really what we think is going to be the definitive book on um, Frederick Douglass. This is David Blight's Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, um, which, you know, looks at both the Douglass, the public person, but also the private man and goes back and reconsiders uh, Douglass in terms of how he portrayed himself in his own three memoirs and sort of what we know about what his life actually was like, not always the same. Um, right. Memoir and biography obviously can very often contradict each other. So that's the fourth book. And then lastly, Michael Pollan, um, who is a best-selling author, um, has written many great books about food and the way we eat um, and about the, the science of nutrition And this is really kind of a departure for him in certain ways. Um, The book is called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And it's a completely fascinating book. What he did was not only look at the history of psychedelics and sort of the way in which these drugs went from being something that, you know, could have ended up being sort of pharmaceutical medications, but it ended up being, you know, illegal and and demonized in his telling. And in order to really investigate it fully, he decides to take these psychedelics himself, and this is not someone who had previously taken any of these drugs, and so he reports on that. Um, And we just found it to be a completely fascinating narrative, both personal and historical, but also it really raises these very interesting questions, you know, about what does consciousness mean and what is this, you know, there's this older sort of more primitive part of the brain mm. um, that you can tap into through psychedelics. What does that mean then about like about how we view the world and how changeable the mind is? So uh, that book really uh, is very persuasive, I have to say, um, and raises a lot of interesting questions. Wow. Fabulous, Pamela. Just just great. And I think, you know, I love the range of the books that you selected. I think, it, as I said at the outset, it's fun for everybody to reflect on it. I particularly like that you go back to the beginning of the year because you could see how easy it would be to be thinking about all the books that come out in the fall. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to thank you for taking the time to be on the show. You had like a fun, different way of introducing the books this year, didn't you? We did. We decided to do our own uh, podcast. We did a live version of it in front of an audience. And so that was a lot of fun um, and had seven people together from among our editors at the book review sort of talk about our own favorites and then a few books that didn't quite make the list. So that's still available. People can listen to that as well. Great. We'll link to that also for people who might want to see that information. Obviously, they could go to New York Times Book Review and link to that as well. Yes, absolutely. Super. Thanks for all the really wonderful work that you and your team do with the New York Times Book Review and the Daily Review. It's just, as booksellers, we're very grateful of the commitment that the New York Times has made to books. Oh, well, you're very welcome. I hope readers enjoy it, too. Many thanks again to Pamela Paul. To see a complete list of the New York Times top best books of 2018, just go to bookpodcast.com. And one of the things that you might want to be thinking about are what are your reading life resolutions? Ann Bogle has a great like reading resolution, like you could set up goals for yourself. I think it's pretty cool. And we'll have a link to that on our website. But in the meantime, wishing you the happiest of New Year's. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.